Well, good evening from my side. It's good to be with you again this evening. It's especially good to uh, have the joy to come to the pulpit after a time of worshiping God in song like that. Uh, I trust it warms your heart and makes you long for uh, the day in which we will all sing with perfect voices uh, in heaven one day. Uh, what a wonderful blessing to be able to worship the Lord. Could I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel again? We've started our new series in Mark's Gospel, and we're going to pick up this evening uh, and read together Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 45. So please follow along uh, with me in your Bibles as I read, and and then we'll come to uh, the exposition of this portion of Scripture. Mark 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they came, uh, sorry, and they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, uh, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. 
And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Well, this is God's word, and uh, a lot in it tonight. Uh, I think at least eight immediately, uh, as, as Mark leads us into this fast-paced narrative of the life of, of Jesus. Uh, but let's just come to the Lord and ask him to help us to, to see the essence of, of what is in this chapter this evening. Father, we do again thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful privilege of gathering here this evening to, to read it, to have this account of the life of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for us to learn tonight the lessons that you intend us to learn about Jesus from your word. Lord, may this not be for any one of us an academic exercise or, or merely a ritual that we, we go through uh, but may our hearts be opened to see and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as our King tonight. For we pray this in His name and for His glory. Amen. Well, as we resume our series in Mark this evening, last week we began this fast-paced journey with Mark as he, look at verse 1, recounts the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I mentioned last week that he does so with the particular perspective uh, of the events of Jesus' life as told by the Apostle Peter. And so last week in the first 13 verses, Mark showed us something of Jesus' preparation for his earthly ministry. We saw that his arrival was heralded by the last of the Old Testament prophets in the person of John the Baptist. We saw his first public act uh, was to identify with sinners in John's baptism of repentance. He was then publicly authenticated by God in the heavens being torn open, the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus and the voice from heaven declaring, you are my son whom I love. I am very pleased with you. And then we saw his, his real practical identification with us. It began in his temptations in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, some time has passed between the end of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14. Time in which John the baptizer, uh, who was this herald of the Messiah, he's been arrested Mark will, will go into the details behind this arrest a little bit later in chapter 6. But basically, John's message of repentance from sin was not well received by the puppet king Herod. And so John was arrested and he was thrown into prison. We've also shifted location geographically from verse 13. Verse 13, uh, or 1 to 13, was centered around the Jordan River in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. But now in verse 14, we move up to the north, uh, to the region of Galilee, where the majority of Jesus' ministry took place. 
And again, true to Mark's fast pace of action, he, he jumps right in to tell us that Jesus began his public ministry by proclaiming the gospel of God uh, in verse 14 and 15. The time is fulfilled, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So verse 14 really gives us uh, the title to our sermon tonight, The King has arrived, and this sets the scene and the theme for all that will follow. But just notice something very important as you read verse one alongside verse 14. Verse one says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So do you see that Jesus did not just come to preach the good news in verse 14, but verse 1 tells us he is actually the good news to be preached. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come And Jesus himself, the very Son of God, is the King. Now, although the Jews of Jesus' day were were quite confused about what the kingdom of God really was and what it would look like, they were right in this respect that they were expecting. They were expecting that when the Messiah came, when he arrived, he would usher in God's promised kingdom on earth. And so Jesus' statement in verse 15 is loaded theologically, and it has great historical anticipation. The time has come. The wait is over. The kingdom of God has come near. And so the first 13 verses have set the scene for there to be no misunderstanding whatsoever that Jesus is himself the long-awaited Messiah King. Last week we saw that he is the one who is so much superior to the greatest of all human beings. It's a Sunday school quiz. If anyone ever asks you who's the greatest of all human beings apart from Jesus, well, we saw last week it's John the Baptist. And John said, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. This is the beloved Son of God, with whom God is fully pleased, as as we saw this morning in in, uh, Shane's message from Psalm 18, from 2 Samuel. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment, the one in whom God is fully pleased. Jesus is the King who has come now to establish God's rule and reign over his people in a way that David could never, ever even have imagined. We're going to encounter this idea of the kingdom of God at least 15 times in Mark's gospel. And so it's a theme which Mark is going to uh, develop uh, as he works through the gospel, and we'll explore it with him as he does so. But it is important tonight to understand that unlike what the Jews expected, the kingdom of God in essence is not territory but authority. The kingdom of God is God's rule over the lives of all people generally, but more specifically, it's God's reigning over those who are his people. And so fundamental to understanding this idea of the kingdom of God is that we come tonight to recognize who is the king of this kingdom and thereby submit 
to his authority over our lives. Modern Christianity has created uh, a false distinction between the idea of Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. And that is nowhere to be found in Scripture. The only way Jesus can be our Savior is because he is our Lord, because he is the sovereign king who has come to establish God's rule and reign over his kingdom. So for the rest of chapter one, Mark wants us to know in no uncertain terms just what it means that the king has arrived. Now last week, you might recall, my sermon had no points. And that is because I was banking my three points from last week to use this week. Um, And so for the remaining time tonight, I've got six ways uh, in which Mark shows us the authority of King Jesus as he comes to establish his kingdom. So in the first place, I want us to see Jesus's authority over hearts uh, in verses 16 to 20. In these verses, we have the fairly well-known account of Jesus calling four of his disciples. All four were fishermen. Uh, They were part of their family businesses, which many commentators suggest was quite a a well-established, lucrative business around the Sea of Galilee. This is not a guy standing on the shore with a fishing rod waiting for hours to bring one home. Now, these are commercial fishermen who brought home fish in large numbers uh, to sell in the marketplace. And so firstly, we see Jesus calling Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. They were busy fishing. They were busy casting their nets. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And look at verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going a little further... Jesus saw James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were busy working with their father in their family business. And verse 20 says, immediately Jesus called them and they left their father in the boat with the servants and they followed Jesus. Four men, burly fishermen, hardworking career fishermen who at the voice of King Jesus immediately leave everything, their nets, their boats, their careers, their livelihood, they walked out of the family enterprise and they followed Jesus. Now, I don't want us to get sidetracked here by the whole debate in Christianity between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. We can do that another time. But I want you to consider how simply and how clearly Mark shows the supreme authority which Jesus has over men's hearts. These were not four religious groupies sitting around unemployed on the street corner with nothing better to do than to simply follow a stranger around. No, these were strong men, resourceful men, faithful men, hardworking men who heard the call of Jesus and immediately submitted their lives to his call. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Mark's point, Jesus has authority over human hearts. 
Secondly, we see that Jesus has authority over minds in verse 21 and 22. And now in these verses, the authority of Jesus is specifically stated in the context of Jesus' teaching in the synagogue. Verse 21, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now in in Jewish society, the, the pinnacle arena for the mind was the local synagogue. This was equivalent to what we would expect from our universities today, where the great minds of the day would would go and be taught, and they would learn how to reason and debate, and, and obviously being Jewish, this was all surrounding the teaching of the Word of God. We have a reference here to the scribes. These were full-time teachers of the law. Men who spend all day studying the scriptures, studying all the additional books of Jewish rules and regulations, who would then teach the people in the synagogues. And how did they do their teaching? Well, apparently by most of the time quoting those who had gone before them. But Mark's point here is to contrast Jesus with those experts of the law. Not so much in what he taught them, but the way he taught them. It says that the people were astonished because he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This should not surprise us, for the one who was teaching them is the very word of God in the flesh. He is the divine inspiration behind all the words of Scripture. You see, the authority of Jesus is not a derived authority because he was able to quote people of yesteryear. No, Jesus' was an inherent authority because he is the king. And here we see from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry that he is a king who is not calling us to commit intellectual suicide. This is the charge laid against us as Christians today by those atheistic thinkers of our day who consider themselves to be intellectually enlightened. No, right from the beginning, Jesus reveals himself to be the one with full authority over the mind. After all, he himself is the source of all truth, and he alone has the inherent authority to proclaim truth to our minds. Remember John 1, verse 14 and 17, speaking of Jesus, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So why then is it that so many people then and today do not see the authority of Jesus over their minds, over their thinking? Why is it that so many reject the truth of Jesus? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
If you are not a believer tonight, if you're not a believer in the truth of Jesus Christ tonight, I can state on the full authority of God's word that you have been duped. You've been hoodwinked by the greatest conspiracy theory of all time because you've been blinded by Satan himself. That's what this verse says. So then, what kind of authority does Jesus really have over our minds if Satan is able to blind us from his truth? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, but their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So do you see that this second point is linked to the first Jesus' authority over our minds is directly linked to his authority over our hearts. We are on a very dangerous path if we try to separate God's authority over the heart and his authority over the mind of men. Now, Scripture tells us we are all born with spiritually dead hearts and spiritually blind minds. But Jesus has the power to give life to dead hearts and to give sight to blind minds because he alone is the king who rules and reigns over all that he has made. If you are a Christian today, it is not because you are clever or because you are such a good person or because this is something that you really wanted. Your heart believes and your mind understands because King Jesus has arrived and he has called and he has spoken. Well, the third area where we see the authority of Jesus is his authority over demons in verse 23 to 28. And again, we, we don't need to guess that this is the point that Mark is trying to make because he tells us plainly in these verses that as Jesus taught with the very authority of God himself in the synagogue, immediately a demon-possessed man cries out, verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then in verse 25, we see that Jesus then calmly rebukes this evil spirit, commands him to be silent and to come out of the man, and the demon obeys. I think we meant to kind of enter into the scene there. We meant to see this deranged, demon-possessed man shouting and screaming with a loud voice to start with, and then shouting and screaming with a loud voice as the demon leaves the man, and in the middle is the calm but authoritative voice of Jesus. Be still. Come out of him. What was the response to all the eyewitnesses in the synagogue that day? And they were all amazed, verse 27, so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority? 
He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Can I remind you as modern 21st century people what Paul says in Ephesians 6? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the reality of the Christian life. Thankfully, Mark makes it clear that King Jesus has authority over all things in heaven and on earth, physical and spiritual, things that are seen and unseen. Yes, even Satan himself. Should I say especially Satan himself and his legion of demons. Jesus speaks and they obey. In the fourth place, then Mark proceeds to the next area of Jesus' authority, namely that he has authority over sickness. In verses 29 to 34. Now, I think one of the dangers that we may face as Christians in, in often emphasizing the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God is that we may go too far and we, we disconnect the kingdom of God from the physical world in which you and I live. Kind of think, well, it's all about going to church and singing hymns and praying, but it, it doesn't really have an impact in my daily life. The, the Jews of Jesus' day, and, and I think many other Christians today, tend to focus too much on the, the physical nature of God's kingdom. It's, it's all about the nation of Israel. It's about a, a literal reign of Jesus in Jerusalem on David's throne. It's, it's all about earthly prosperity and, and well-being. Well, we can err too much in the direction where it becomes only about the heart and only about the spiritual, and we forget that Jesus is Lord over the heavens and the earth. The earth was created in the very beginning to be the realm of God's kingdom. Back in the Garden of Eden, the, the physical and the spiritual coexisted in beautiful harmony between God who made all things and his creation especially between God and human beings made in his image into whom he had breathed spiritual life. But then sin comes in and all of creation comes under the curse of God, under his judgment, and so God removes his presence from those whom he has created. We know the wages of sin is death. So the whole story of the Bible since the fall of Adam in Genesis 3 is a history littered with sickness and disease and death. These are the effects of the fall. These are the effects of sin in our world. And so for Jesus to be the king that this world needs requires that he not only exercise complete authority over the unseen, over the heart and the mind and, and the evil forces, but also over the effects of sin in our world. And where do we see that every single day in sickness and in disease and in death? Mark's going to show us in future chapters Jesus' complete authority over all creation. We're going to see Jesus commanding nature and it obeys him. We're going to see Jesus ruling over death as he commands the dead to come back to life. But here Mark shows us that Jesus' authority is not limited to the spiritual realm but he actually breaks into our world, into the brokenness of sin and its curse, 
and he brings about physical healing of a mother-in-law, Nochal. He starts by healing Peter's mother-in-law. And the news of this spread so rapidly that by evening, we are told they brought everyone who was sick and demon-possessed to Peter's house. The whole city, verse 33, tells us, gathered at Peter's home, and he healed many people, and he cast out many demons. King Jesus has authority over sickness and all the brokenness of our physical world. And then in the first place, Mark goes on to reveal something perhaps unexpected, namely Jesus' authority in prayer. We see this in verse 35 to 39. We need to realize that what Mark is describing here in verse 35 is not an isolated event in the ministry of Jesus. This was the the daily pattern of his life. The authority which Jesus exercised over men's hearts and their minds and over demons and over diseases, it began every day with his undivided time in prayer with his Father. Jesus' time in prayer with God not only equipped him for the extremely busy schedule of his public ministry, but it also set the direction and it set the priority for all that he did. We see in verse 36 to 39 where Peter and the others are searching for Jesus. They can't find him. Why? Because all those who had not been healed the day before had arrived back at Simon's house the next morning. It was their turn to be healed. The demands on Jesus' time were immense. We know from many accounts in the gospel, Jesus didn't stand aloof from the crowds and kind of just wave his hand across all of them and they were healed. He could have done that. In actual fact, there are some times when Jesus was not even present at the healing. He, He simply spoke the word and the person was healed. But the normal pattern was that Jesus interacted with each person individually. He spoke to them. He inquired after them. He tested their hearts. Sometimes he rebuked them. But each healing, each casting out of a demon was a very personal interaction between Jesus and an individual. And so each interaction would have been emotionally and spiritually draining for Jesus. How did he do it? Well, every morning when it was still dark, Jesus started off his day in a quiet place in prayer with God. That is what empowered, that is what directed the authority of his daily agenda. I love the fact that Jesus was not driven along by the agenda of other people. He was not even driven by the agenda of legitimate needs. Sick people, demon-possessed people. He was able to meet their needs, and yet he was driven by the agenda of the kingdom of God. And so he tells his disciples, my mission is to preach the good news. Let's go to the other towns also so that I may preach the good news. Jesus' authority was drawn from and empowered by his obedience to the will of his Father which he got fresh every morning in his time of prayer. I think this provides just a a real practical challenge for us as God's people, doesn't it? 
Perhaps it gives us an idea of why we see so little impact through the ministries of this church and and the gospel, generally speaking, in the world around us. Why are Christians making so little impact? Maybe it's because we are not obtaining the mandate for our ministry from God in prayer. Yeah, we are so quick, we're so good at starting ministry, starting new things, getting busy to address the needs and the demands of the church, the, the needs and the demands of the world around us out there. And we assume that because we have means and because we have abilities to address the needs, well, this should occupy our energy. But have we really sought the authority of God's will for us in all that we do? Jesus' ministry was not about healing and casting out demons. Those things established his identity. Those things proved his authority as king. But each day, after a quiet time in prayer with God, he set out to accomplish God's purposes, which was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Perhaps it's time for us to all recalibrate to take stock of this priority in prayer, individually as Christians, and yes, corporately, this priority of prayer for us as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church. And then lastly this evening, Mark wants us to see that Jesus has authority to save in verses 40 to 45. Now, if you're looking at those verses, you might be wondering why I've called this last account in verse 40 to 45, Jesus' authority to save, and and not just another example of Jesus' authority over sickness. And the reason is because leprosy, leprosy was a very specific disease in the context of the Old Testament regulations, which resulted in a person being considered ceremonially unclean. Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. She was not ceremonially unclean. They could come into the house. They could gather around her. They could pray with her. They could be near her. But leprosy was very different. Leviticus 13 and 14 reveal that leprosy was identified with the destructive curse of sin on the body. And among The Jewish laws of ceremonial defilement, leprosy was considered second only to a dead body, which is the ultimate association with sin, for the wages of sin is death. If you want to see something which is most unlike God, look at a corpse. And leprosy was just one step away. The rabbis believed As one commentator says, that it was as difficult to cleanse leprosy as it was to raise the dead. It's not very encouraging. The Old Testament records only two cases of leprosy being healed, both by divine intervention. One was Miriam, the sister of Moses, and the other was Naaman, the Syrian general. Now, just to understand how serious leprosy was, listen to what Leviticus 13 says in verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain 
unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So firstly, the consequence of having leprosy meant human separation from the community of God's people. They had to live outside of the camp in Israel. They were removed from their homes, from their families. They had to live as an outcast to the people of God. But secondly, they were considered ceremonially unclean within the context of Jewish religion, which meant that they could not have access to God in the temple. They could not attend services at the temple. Leviticus 14 lists a whole bunch of of washings and rituals and sacrifices which the priests had to administer before a person could be declared clean again. Be allowed back into the community of God's people and be allowed back into the, the center of God's people, into the temple worship of God. And a key aspect, if you read Leviticus 14, of this purifying ritual was that they had to make atonement for their sin. So apart from death itself, having leprosy was the ultimate symbol of spiritual defilement. Everything about the disease, everything associated with it led to an exclusion from the people of God and from the presence of God. So with that background, we read in verse 40 to 45 that a leper comes to Jesus, and he implores Jesus, kneeling before him, and he says to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice what he was asking for. He was asking to be made clean. He does not say, Lord Jesus, if you, if you will, you can heal me. If you will, you can make my disease go away. No, what is foremost in this leper's mind is his need to be made clean. Now, in a culture where this leper was not allowed to come within six feet of another person, apparently, if a leper had stood under a tree and you passed by under the tree, you became unclean. Any contact with a leper made you unclean. And you would then have to wait out your period of waiting to prove that you did not contract the disease. And then you would have to also go through all the cleansing rituals in order to be acceptable back into the society. So in this culture of social distancing and ceremonial defilement, we read that Jesus not only lets this leper come near to him, but in compassion, Jesus stretches out his hand And he touches the man. And he says to him, be healed. No, Clinton, are you reading your Bibles? He says to him, be clean. Be clean. And immediately he was made clean. This is a complete reversal of the normal course of events in which The person who touched the leper would have become unclean, defiled. But here we see as King Jesus touches the defiled man, instead of Jesus becoming defiled, the man, the leper, becomes clean. So to be cleansed from leprosy meant firstly for Jesus to be restored back into the presence of God and the worship of God. Jesus tells him to immediately go 
This man who had been an outcast from the temple for weeks or months or perhaps even years, and he says to him, what? Go to your family. Go and hug your kids. He doesn't. He says, go to the priests and offer for cleansing what Moses commanded. Get back into a right relationship with God. And so what we have in this final account of the beginning here of Jesus' ministry was so much more than a man being healed of a skin disease, but a very clear declaration that Jesus has authority to cleanse the sinner, to restore the sinner back to God. In other words, he has authority to save. Jesus here shows that he is bringing to an end all the ceremonial laws which either separated sinners from God or through the washings and sacrifices allowed the sinner back into the presence of God. Jesus shows that all of those things were a shadow. He is the reality who has arrived. He has authority to forgive sins, to make clean, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So Mark has given us again a a rapid fire introduction to the ministry of Jesus and he shows us that King Jesus has arrived. Unlike all the previous human kings of Israel and we've been spending a lot of time looking at one of the greatest who's turning out to be not such a great king after all. Unlike all the emperors of the Roman Empire, this King Jesus has arrived And he has authority over hearts, over minds, over demons, over sickness. He has authority in prayer, and he has authority to save. I think the point of these six areas of Christ's authority, Christ's kingship, the application is that there is no area in your life or mine, individually or us as a church, where his rule does not reach, where his reign does not exercise supreme authority. To accept Jesus as your savior means submitting to his kingship in every area of your life. I've been a Christian long enough to know the struggle in my own heart and I've spoken to many of you to know that it's easy to have Jesus as your savior. Who doesn't want him as a savior? It's not so easy to have Jesus as your king. Mark tells us you can't have the one without the other. To accept Jesus as your savior means submitting to his kingship in every area of your lives. Your relationships, your career, your family, your possessions, your physical body, your talents, your passions, your dreams. If Jesus is the king that Mark tells us he is, then everything belongs to him. Everything is to be submitted to his will, to his purposes, to his glory. So just running through that list, is Jesus king of your heart? Have you firstly responded to his call for salvation? And have you obeyed his call to follow him? That's where it starts, in the heart. But then is Jesus king of your mind? Oh, we live in a world with thousands of voices, from specialists, from experts. 
Is Jesus the source of all your truth? Does his word have ultimate authority to instruct your, instruct your mind and to shape your will? How much time do you devote to his kingship over your mind compared to all the other avenues of books and blogs and social media and information and entertainment and instruction and indoctrination every single day? Is Jesus really king of your mind? Is Jesus king over the spiritual realm in your life, the spiritual realm? Well, that will be evidenced by your commitment to allow nothing impure or evil into your heart. Young people, but not limited to young people, the music that you listen to, the videos you watch on YouTube, the TV series, the movies you watch, the idols that you have allowed to take root in your heart, these are fueled by Satan himself. Is Jesus king over the spiritual realm in your life? Is Jesus king over your body? Not just in the area of sickness and disease and praying for healing, but in the way in which you use your body, in the way in which you take care of your body, the way in which you present your body, is it all an instrument for his service? Do you see Jesus as king over all the brokenness of this world as he, as he rules in providence over all that he has made? If you are sick and Jesus is your king, your prayer to Jesus for healing is so that you might better serve him with a healthy body. How often do we pray that? And not, Lord, heal me so that I can get on with what I've planned for my life. And then a tough one, is Jesus king over your prayer life? Do you follow his pattern of daily dependence on God in prayer? Each day submitting and aligning your will and your desires to that of your heavenly father. You see, it's only King Jesus who has the authority to save you to save you from the wrath that is to come. It's only Jesus who can deliver you from the spiritual leprosy of your heart, which separates you from God. It's only Jesus who can restore you back to God and restore you into the community of God's people. Mark tells us that King Jesus has arrived. He is the all-powerful king. He is the all-good king. He is the only Savior King. Is He your King? Is He your King? Let's pray. Father, our whole theme of worship today in this morning service and this evening service has been to stand in awe of the God who is worthy of all our worship, who is worthy of all our praise, who is worthy of complete 
loyalty and submission and faithfulness. But we will only understand you and see you and believe you to be worthy if you have first saved us, if you have first commanded our unbelieving hearts, our dead hearts to come to life, if you have shone the light of the gospel into our minds to cause us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, won't you please do that again tonight? For those of us who believe, shine afresh the light of the glory of Jesus into our hearts. And may we all go home tonight and realign and recommit our lives to the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ in every area. And Lord, for those here tonight who are still on the fence or those who are perhaps here in hardened rebellion against your truth, won't you take hold of them? Won't you command, as you commanded those evil spirits to depart, as you called the disciples to follow you, won't you speak to the sinner's heart tonight and save them? We pray this, Lord, because only you can do this work. And we ask that you would do it and that you would receive all the glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.